Phillips, and we're back for a third season of Vermont Ed Reads, books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Kicking off this season, we're joined on the show by author and former teacher Kate Messner. Kate's here to talk about how we can use books about some dark topics as conduits to reach students who may not even know they can or should talk about those topics. I did just make it sound a lot bleaker of an episode than it is. Trust me, it's a good one. And Kate's a delightful guest. We'll talk about her books Chirp, Breakout, and The Seventh Wish, along with sending you away with a whole mess of new titles for your to-read pile. Plus, Kate will reveal what her favorite flavor of cricket is. Yes, you will be amazed to learn how many different ways there are to snack on crickets. Now, one content note for today's show. Kate's book Chirp deals with issues of grooming, which is when adults behave in inappropriate ways with children, usually as a prelude to much worse behavior. We'll talk today a little bit about that, but if you're not in a space to join us right now, that's okay. Be kind, safe, and gentle with yourselves. Welcome back to Vermont Every Season 3. Let's chat. Thanks so much for joining me, Kate. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you so much. Um, Well, I am a children's author. I've written, as of 2020, it will be 50 books for kids. Um, And they range from picture books like um, Over and Under the Snow and How to Read a Story, How to Write a Story, The Next President, to easy readers like the Ferguson Zeke series with Kendallwick, to chapter books like the Ranger in Time series with Scholastic, and novels and nonfiction, uh, books like Breakout and The Seventh Wish and Chirp, um, and then some nonfiction as well, like um, Tracking Pythons, which is about invasive Burmese pythons in Florida, and a new series called History Smashers, which is aimed at undoing the lies and myths we teach young kids about history, starting with the first Thanksgiving. The first book is History Smashers Mayflower. And that book just came out. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. New this summer. Uh, History Smashers Mayflower and History Smashers Women's Right to Vote. And then in the fall, uh, book three comes out, Pearl Harbor. And we'll have book four in the spring of 2021. And that is History Smashers Titanic. Those sound so relevant to our current moment in time. Perfect timing. I really hope so. I hope they'll be helpful. I know so many teachers right now are looking at the work that that we can all do um, to dismantle white supremacy and to to promote equality. And part of that work is taking a hard look at the way we've taught history. Uh, Our textbooks have long looked at things from a very white, uh, very colonialist perspective. And these books aim to to start a broader conversation about that. And to the biggest thing is I think kids are going to read them and have an amazing time at the dinner table saying, mom, dad, did you know this about Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Uh, so I think, uh, I think it's going to prompt some really great conversations, not just in the classroom, but at home around the dinner table too. That's my hope anyway. Wow, this is so excited. I, I would not say your books haven't been current before. They always feel really relevant and current. And we're going to talk about that with um, this current one and a couple of recent ones. This is super exciting. Um, Before we get started on Chirp, though, 
I always like to ask my guests what's on their bedside table, what they're reading right now. Do you have any summer reading going on, Kate? I do. I actually just finished an amazing young adult novel called A Song Below Water by Bethany Morrow. And it is about uh, mermaids and black voices. And it's just, it's a spectacular story. I think sometimes fantasy and speculative fiction is the very best way to get at the issues that we're facing in our, our modern world. And this is a book that just does that brilliantly. Excellent. I um, have that on my Libro FM right now, actually. So I'm going to have to okay. listen to it on my next long drive. Thanks for that recommendation. So my, one of my bits of summer reading was Chirp. Um, I picked it up right as the school year was ending and got sucked immediately into this book. And I wondered if you could introduce us to Nia, who is moving back to someplace many of our listeners will know, which is Burlington, Vermont. Could you tell us a little bit about Mia? Sure. Mia has just finished seventh grade and uh, she is moving from Boston where her family had moved from Vermont a couple years earlier back to Vermont. And uh, it's a good move for her for a few reasons. First of all, her grandmother lives in Vermont and she loves Graham. So that's a great thing. But second, Mia... Mia's time in Boston wasn't the greatest. She's a gymnast and she had an experience at her gym with an assistant coach that she's hoping to leave behind, hoping to forget about something that she didn't even talk about. So she's moving back to Vermont with a secret and also healing from a broken arm she got when she was uh, doing something on the balance theme. Yeah. When we meet Mia, she's actually in the car uh, in the beginning of the book and her mother her very concerned mother is trying to get her to pick some summer activities. And Mia just wants to watch TV. And um, she sort of reluctantly picks some summer activities. And you get the impression early on that that has less to do with the broken arm than with some, a failure of confidence really related to what's been happening in her life recently. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, she's, she's moving at a time when she's not sure who she is anymore. Um, and we'll, we'll do a minor spoiler here. Um, it, her gymna assistant gymnastics coach at her old gym was showing her some really inappropriate attention. There were unwanted back rubs and hugs that lasted too long and uh, texts that were just strange and uncomfortable for her. It's behavior that most adults would look at and say, that looks like grooming a child for sexual abuse. And in fact, the things that happen with that coach that make Mia so uncomfortable are based on the very same things that Larry Nasser did when he was trying to gain the trust of the gymnasts that he abused. Um, so many of us have read those just horrifying headlines of the team doctor who sexually assaulted so many gymnasts. Um, this, the character, the, the assistant coach in this book is sort of like Larry Nasser before it got all that way, before it got so far. Um, so it's, it's behavior that an adult would recognize as grooming. A kid doesn't know that. A kid just recognizes that she feels icky and weird and doesn't understand what's going on and maybe wonders if she's done something wrong. And so Mia doesn't talk to anybody about what happened with this assistant coach. Uh, she's happy to be moving. It's not an issue for her anymore. But of course, 
she's carrying scars from what happened, um, not just from this accident she had on the balance beam that required multiple surgeries on her arm, but scars inside too, the kind of scars so many women carry around um, and don't always talk about until there's, there's that opportunity. So Chirp is very much a story about uh, finding yourself again, and especially finding your voice. And so that's something that Mia goes through in this summer. The book takes place over the course of a summer. It begins right after school ends as the family is moving back to Vermont. And as you mentioned, Mia's mom is kind of hounding her to sign up for some day camps. The rule at our house was you got to do two, two activities, something for your body and something for your brain. Uh, so Mia's mom has that same rule. Um, so she's giving Mia gymnastics flyers and Mia is in adamant that she's not going back to gymnastics. Eventually, she settles on this thing called Warrior Camp, which is a camp where kids learn to do all those obstacles that you see on the TV show, America Ninja Warrior. Mia likes that show. She figures how bad could the camp be? And then she also signs up for something called Launch Camp for Young Entrepreneurs, which is a camp where kids go to design their own businesses and, and write business plans and create products, sort of like you see on Shark Tank. And Mia loves that show too. So thus, she has chosen her two summer camps. And thankfully, she makes some friends that summer. And through the, the physical healing, uh, she goes through at warrior camp, you know, she's conditioning, she's getting quite literally stronger going through this warrior camp. At the same time, she's gaining confidence at, at launch camp and meeting some new um, female friends who really boost her up. Um, so that's a, a huge theme too, is the, the power of women to hold one another up. So many great themes in this book. It's hard to figure out which, which question, which thread I want to pull on. So I'm going to try to get up to all of them. Um, you mentioned Launch Camp. And um, I love Launch Camp as an educator who's trying to get, um, I work with educators to make school more meaningful and relevant to young people. It's this entrepreneurial camp where they're making and they're designing business plans and they're, they have an audience and they go see... Um, they go on a field trip up to UVM to see an, a, a woman entrepreneur and hear about her, her um, trajectory, her professional trajectory. And I wondered, um, you know, is Launch Camp just in your imagination? Is there somewhere we can find Launch Camp? <laughs> Well, the, the exact version in the book is from my imagination, but I can tell you that it was inspired by so many maker spaces that I have seen in schools and in libraries where kids are doing this exact kind of work. They're, they're being encouraged to come up with their own ideas and build things, whether that's with Legos or writing apps or, or anything like that. Uh, I've just seen, you know, in my visits to different schools, I've seen so many amazing projects that kids are working on with support from their teachers and librarians and in various maker spaces. So that was really the inspiration for Launch Camp. I did have a great time making up all the projects that the, the different teams were working on now. That was really, really fun. Well, there's um, the dim sum, the bow buns, is that what they're called? Yeah. And yep, there's, there's um, an app to find soccer games. Yeah, Kicks Finder. It's a, a, some kids who wrote an app to find pickup soccer games in town. And uh, there's some cookies. Yeah, cookies for a cause. Um, Aiden, one of the boys, is a really great baker. And so he's launching this business to sell cookies that people can use for fundraisers. There are some kids who are 
um, building jewelry, creating jewelry out of recycled materials. And then there's Mia who has decided she's going to use her time at launch camp to write a new business plan for her grandmother's cricket farm. And yes, you heard that right. Cricket farm. It's a real thing. Uh, and so Mia decides that's how she's going to use her time at launch camp and what she learns about starting businesses and marketing and supporting them. And let's just talk about those crickets because those crickets are for eating, for humans to eat. They are. They are. And so let me tell you where this element of the story came from. Um, a, several years ago, actually in 2013, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization came out with a report called Edible Insects that basically said, hey, everybody in the Western world, you ought to consider eating insects as a form of protein because A, insects are good for you, and B, they are way more sustainable to raise than other creatures we like to eat for protein, like cows and pigs and chickens. They use way less water and feed, and they, they produce many, many, many times fewer uh, greenhouse gases. So I found this report fascinating. And for a while, I was, I was talking about it all around the house with anybody who would listen. Um, and I had done some research on entomophagy. I had a dinner party where we had grasshopper tacos one night. And so uh, time passes. And a few years ago, a few years after that report, my husband comes home one day and he is part of a, uh, an organization that helps uh, startup businesses, small startups launch in Vermont. And he came home from one of his meetings and dropped a folder on my desk and said, I've got one for you. And the folder was about a cricket farm that was launching in Vermont, a startup cricket farm. I said, this is so cool. He said, we've been invited to come see it. Do you want to come? I said, yes, I want to come. Um, so we were invited to, to visit this fledgling cricket farm in Williston. It was in a big old warehouse. So if you're picturing a cricket farm with like meadows and barns, it's not that kind of farm. Um, most of them, and there are, there are cricket farms, um, several around the country. Most of them are in industrial parks and they're in big warehouses. And the crickets are raised in big bins with these cardboard cricket condos, they call them inside. And they, they eat uh, ground up chicken feed, things like that. And they are indeed being raised for human consumption. So you can, you can roast crickets and flavor them. Um, when I was researching this book, I sampled crickets in every iteration you can imagine. I had sea salt and garlic crickets, barbecue crickets, sriracha crickets, maple crickets. It was a Vermont cricket farm after all. Um, we had chocolate covered cricket ice cream and cricket pizza. And of course, the big thing with crickets is, is um, protein powder. So cricket powder is protein powder, just like the, the vegetable-based protein powders that athletes use. And so that's a real product too. So we had uh, bread and cookies made with cricket flour. They call those chocolate chirp cookies. Uh, so it was fascinating to actually see this farm in action. I got to spend a lot of time with the cricket farmers, learning how to take care of crickets and, and uh, you know, how to, how to try to convince people that crickets are food, which is, as you might imagine, a bit of an uphill battle. And I started thinking, what if somebody were trying to sabotage a cricket farm for whatever reason? So that became the premise, um, one of the premises for Chirp. Mia's grandmother owns the cricket farm in the story. And uh, as, as soon as Mia and her family arrive, they learn that Graham is convinced 
somebody is trying to sabotage her cricket farm. So Mia and her new friends that she makes um, do a whole lot of sleuthing that summer, a little bit of breaking and entering, uh, trying to figure out who's behind <laughs> this alleged sabotage on the cricket farm. So that pulls us back to this theme you said earlier um, about, uh, I love the cricket farm as a setting, by the way. I was really intrigued and ready to try crickets. Before I even get to that question, what was your favorite cricket that you ate? Like, what was your favorite cricket product? I think that the, the flour is very, very good. You can, you can replace about a fifth of the flour in any baking recipe, you know, your chocolate chip cookies or oatmeal cookies, um, and you, you really don't notice very much, and it gives it a, a nice little protein boost. So the chocolate chip, uh, chocolate chirp cookies were pretty great. Um, and I thought the, the roasted barbecue crickets were pretty terrific, too. Yeah, I wanted, the, I wanted a roasted salt and vinegar. Those were, those were good as well. When I was on a book tour in February for this book, I, I was actually out for two weeks all around the country right before the, the pandemic hit, uh, traveling and talking with kids in, in schools around the country about this book. And uh, at the end of every assembly, I asked them, do you think one of your teachers should try a roasted cricket right now? And of course they went wild. And so I had teachers sampling sriracha crickets and maple crickets and all kinds of crickets imaginable. So that was a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, so the other thread, so you, you sort of mentioned this other thread about, um, another thread I want to pull or untangle is this thread about Mia and how she sort of knows in her gut that this way her coach is, um, behaving towards her, whether it's the gifts he's giving, the way he's talking to her, the way he touches her is not quite right, but she can't put a name on it. And um, this book feels really important to me for that reason. Like it's a story that girls and boys need to read so they can recognize that that feeling isn't made up. That yeah. it's not about them. That it feels like being able to see that in a book, especially a book that's really geared towards fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders, is a really important thing for kids to, to maybe see an experience that we hope they're not having, but that they could be having. So I'm, I'm just so grateful for that. Yeah, um, thank you. I mean, that, that feeling of, look, of looking back and saying, that felt icky and I can't quite explain it, um, that is what many kids experience, you know, when they're being groomed for abuse or when abuse is first starting, they can't quite, art it's like, this feels wrong, this feels icky, but they don't have a name for it, you know, and part of that is that we haven't necessarily taught them how predators groom children. Um, and that's really important. So uh, this book really does kind of lay that out and it's, it's talked about. And, um, and, and my hope is that, you know, first of all, we, we would love to think this isn't happening to the kids that we teach and the kids who come to our libraries, but it is. Statistics tell us that it is. Um, and so I think my hope is that kids who read this and recognize that feeling are going to recognize this is something I get to speak up about. I can make this stop. I have the power to, to tell somebody about this. I can talk to a trusted adult and, and end this because my voice matters. Um, so I, I, that's really my hope for the book and also my hope for adults who share this book with kids that it's gonna start those conversations. Um, sometimes as adults, we do minimize kids' feelings. 
And, you know, I, I was right up there when, you know, when my kids were little and they would fall down and, you know, skin their knee, I'd be like, oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. You know, we want our kids to be fine. And so sometimes we tell them they're fine and sometimes they're not fine. And that's when we need to do better listening. So I hope this, this book is one that really starts those conversations and, and also will help kids have empathy for one another when friends are going through this and, and you know, encourage them that they can, they can talk to one another about this and especially talk to a trusted adult when something just doesn't feel right. You know, kids, kids have pretty darn good intuition and they don't always know how to articulate when an adult is being inappropriate, but we can teach them that. And that's huge. That just brings me to a quote from your blog that just, it's from a different time, but I think it's really relevant to this. And I'm just going to read it. It says, um, you're talking at this point about school administrators. You say, I understand that school administrators are afraid to talk about tough issues sometimes. Authors are too but we're not protecting kids when we keep them from stories that shine a light in the darker corners of their lives. We're just leaving them alone in the dark. That's so powerful, Kate. I think that that goes beyond this issue too of, you know, of, you know, Chirp is about a kid who was being uncomfortably groomed, um, you know, for, for abuse by all appearances. Um, but I think it goes beyond that. You know, I have a, another book called The Seventh Wish, which deals with a main character whose older sister is struggling with heroin addiction. And that book has faced some challenges. I've had librarians email me and say, I'm not putting this in my library because kids here don't have those issues. Well, guess what? You wouldn't know. You wouldn't necessarily know. And we know that they do all over the country, all over the world, in fact. You know, we have this epidemic of, of opioid addiction. Um, so there's, there's, I think, a certain amount of resistance um, sometimes to books that are more honest about the real issues that kids face. As an adult, I mean, as a parent and as a former teacher, I understand that impulse of wanting to protect kids. But this notion that if we don't talk about it, that means it's not happening and it can never happen, it's just not realistic and it's not the way it works. It's, it's not the real world. And so I think the very best thing we can do in our service to children is be honest with them about things that happen in the world. And when we do that, those kids know that they can trust us to speak up when they need our help. Yeah. And so your other quote, these words still resonate with me. Uh, they did when the seventh wish first came out. And I remember that, um, you were disinvited to a school at that time. And um, so many librarians were appalled by that, you know, we're behind you. And, um, and these words you wrote at that time, I think are still true today, whether whatever controversial, so-called controversial issue we're talking about that really is a part of the fabric of young people's lives. You said, we don't serve only our own children. We don't serve the children of some imaginary land where they are protected from the headlines. We serve real children in the real world, a world where nine-year-olds are learning how to administer naloxone in the hopes that they'll be able to save a family member from dying from an of an overdose. And whether you teach in a poor inner city school or a wealthy suburb, that world includes families that are shattered by opioid addiction right now. Not talking about it doesn't make it go away. It just makes those kids feel more alone. 
think that you really get at, for me, the power of literature to help kids feel seen, to help kids feel less alone, to help kids feel um, like their lives matter, like their experiences aren't just, their, aren't, um, their experiences aren't unique necessarily. They're, they're unique, but their experiences, especially those rough patches, other, other folks have gone there, have gone through that, and they need that aired out so that it's not a, a source of shame. Right, exactly. And it's interesting what you just read. I was writing at the time about the seventh wish and the issue of opioid addiction, but you could just as easily put sexual assault in there. You know, this is something that doesn't recognize city boundaries or towns or villages or socioeconomic boundaries. It's something that affects everybody. Um, you know, kids uh, uh, from all different backgrounds have to deal with this. And when, it, when a child is sexually assaulted, there's not some magical line that it doesn't happen until they turn 14. It, you know, I, I, I was talking with a friend of mine about, um, because I had a similar cancellation before I went on tour for Chirp, uh, which was just mind-blowing to me. This is a book that is specifically designed to say, your voice matters, and if something happens to you, you get to speak up. And we're not going to share that with kids? What on earth could be the motive for that? What on earth could be behind that? But I was, I was telling a friend about this and how this you know, librarian said, oh, it's too young to talk about this. And my friend said, I was five when that happened to me. And my other friend who was there said, yeah, I was eight. And another one said, I was 11. We need to be having those conversations before the kids are teenagers. It's just, it's too late if we wait that long. You know, we want our kids to know early on, they can always talk to us. And if we share those stories, that says to kids, we recognize that this is a thing that happened and happens. And we recognize that this is something that people have a right to speak up about. So that if that ever happens to your child, they're gonna know. They're gonna say, oh, this is one of those things that I get to speak up about and I get to tell this person who shared this book with me. It's, it's pretty powerful stuff to think about, which is why I just, I shake my head when I hear people say, oh no, we can't share these stories with kids. They're so empowering. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, the other thing I love about this book is it, um, it, sort of, it ties together or it layers all of these ways that gender discrimination shows up for girls and women. And so um, you mentioned earlier, one of the threads I wanted to follow is Graham's business. And she's facing um, discrimination as a woman business owner. There's a young woman from UVM who sort of faced some discrimination as a female business owner that, that sort of plays into the story. And then, so it, it, it takes, and then I think that um, Mia's mom actually shares some experiences. And then one of Mia's friends is harassed by some man on the beach. And so it's all these layers of gender discrimination that sort of show up, that start to make a pattern for these girls that helps empower them. And one right. of them, one storyline that is really small in the book, but I found really impactful, was about the relationship between Anna and Eli. And um, so uh, Anna and Eli were on a team at, at launch camp, but Anna left the team because Eli was giving her some inappropriate attention. Right. And Eli, um, in the story, is a boy who's super cute and super used to everybody falling all over him. 
and had asked Anna, hey, do you want to go out for ice cream? And she said, no, thank you. And, you know, that would have been fine. And they, I'm sure, could have, could have continued working together at that point. But he kept asking and asking and asking to the point where she was super uncomfortable and, you know, and chose to leave the team, chose to just step back rather than put up with it. And I think, you know, if we look at statistics, we recognize, and this was the team that was building the app, by the way, it was very much a a technology-based team. When we look at the numbers of women in the technology field and the numbers of women in Silicon Valley versus the numbers of men, you have to wonder how many women had that interest and decided, yeah, this isn't worth it. Um, because of that culture, you know, that was allowed to continue, even if it's something as simpler, simple as just not recognizing that no thank you means no, and don't ask again and again and again, you know, because that creates discomfort in somebody who really just wants to build an app right now. Um, so yeah, that is a, a thread in the story. And it's, it's, I mean, it has a silver lining in the story chirp, because Anna ends up working with Mia and Clover, and the girls become just such you know, close, trusted friends that summer, uh, there's a silver lining. But, you know, the other thing that happens is that team that was building the app lost a really brilliant worker. And that's part of the story, too. You know, it's part of the cost of having a culture that doesn't, you know, talk about consent issues and, and boundaries. Uh, I believe that uh, the girls um, also talked to Eli about his behavior, and he sort of has this moment of realization that if he wants to be friends with Anna, he needs to stop glaring at her, asking her out, giving her that kind of attention. Is that true, or am I just, yeah, did I just want yeah, that no, to happen? They, 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 they talk back to him, and, and his mom has a chat with him, too, yeah. um, you know, and he, he recognizes that, and that's, that's possible, you know, especially with kids. It's possible to learn and say, oh, gosh, I see why that's a problem. I see why that would make you uncomfortable, so that's one reason that I think uh, this book is really important. Um, I have a lot of people who say, oh, this is a great book. I'm going to share it with all my girls. And, you know, this isn't just a book for girls. It's a book for kids of all genders um, because that's an important message. You know, consent and people's right to be in a space and do what they choose to do without being harassed is it's really important for everybody. It's universal, right? Uh, that that we all have a right to consent um, uh, regarding our own bodies. I, I think that's so important. And I think both that boys can be groomed as well and need to learn to have agency over their own bodies. And also that um, boys could behave like Eli and there's something to learn from them for this book. And I, I'm thinking a lot about, I don't know if you've read Chanel Miller's Know My Name. I haven't yet, no. Um, so it's an adult, uh, it's, it's an adult memoir written by Chanel Miller was the, um, young woman who was raped at Stanford oh, uh, by okay. Brock Turner. It's yes. really, really powerful. And I kept thinking of that book, although it's a memoir, it's written for a much older audience. I would say older teenagers, high school kids and, and adults, but thinking about the agency that Chanel has in being able to say, I am not. I'm not going to be defined as a rape victim. I want Brock Turner to be defined for who he is as a rapist and turning the tables on that conversation in really powerful ways, which I feel like you do with the young women 
um, in this book a little. You, um, the, but the young women and the older women, the mother and the grandmother as well, they, they are empowered to redefine themselves and their relationship with um, discrimination and unwanted touch and unwanted comments and beachgoers, et cetera. Right. One of the, um, one of the interesting things, the interesting conversations I've had about this book is um, there's a lot going on in Chirp, as there is in most of the books that I write. Because when I write middle grade novels, I think about the middle grade kids that I know, and they don't have one issue happening in their life at a time. They don't have one thing that they're focused on. They have a million things going on, right? And, and maybe they have a crisis at any given time, whether that's a dog that, that has to be euthanized or a, a sick grandparent or um, you know, a, a parent's divorce or somebody struggling with addiction or some crisis in their family. They, at the same time, they're managing that crisis they still have to do all the other things they were doing. They have to go to soccer practice and continue having relationships with their friends. They have to have sleepovers and, and do their homework. And there's this science project. And so the kids that I write in my novels tend to have all that same um, involvement, you know, an actual life made up of many different elements and many different relationships. And it's interesting. I've had a conversation with a few people who said, there's so much going on in this book. And I thought, it might be too much, but it wasn't. And when I was working on the book, it was really, really important to me that Mia be more than the girl that this thing happened to, yeah. right? Because, you know, you think about it, um, you know, her experiences with this coach were based very much on an experience that I had with a friend of our family when I was a child. And I had all those same feelings of being confused and felt icky and didn't know what to say and what I would even say if I did say something and figured people would just tell me, oh, just be respectful and don't worry about it. And, and so, but at the same time, you know, it mattered and it was harmful. Yeah. I had a life going on around that and I continued to, and I published books and, you know, women are carrying this stuff around. Girls are carrying this stuff around. and when you look at them, they seem fine. They seem fine. They're living lives. They're laughing with their friends. And one of the really important messages for me of Chirp, one of the really important things when I was dealing with Mia's character was that she not just be defined by this thing. Because when real women, real girls are grieving something that happened to them and processing that and trying to work through it, they're also baking cookies. And they're laughing and they're jumping off rocks and swimming and, and playing sports and all these other things. We're complex humans and there's room for, you know, struggles and joy on the same page. And that was really important to me. That's really beautiful. The statistic what I remember when I was younger was one in four, one in four women have experienced sexual assault. I get a lot of mail about this book. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I was, when I wrote it, I knew that kids would talk to me sometimes at school visits. And it's, it's the kid who comes up quietly after everybody else is gone. And they say, um, that happened to me too. And I, you know, and I, and I tell them, I, I'm, I'm so glad you're here and you're talking about it. And I mean, I make sure they're safe. First of all, you know, is this a person that you still see? And, 
and usually no, it's some somebody who's gone or isn't around anymore. Um, but I, I say, yeah, me too. And I had I had anticipated that happening when I wrote the book. What I didn't anticipate was the number of emails and notes I would get from adult women mm-hmm. who had stories that they had never shared. And um, and and you know, it's 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 crazy to think that this middle grade novel is the thing that's going to make somebody say, you know, I get to talk about that thing that happened to me. And yet those are the notes I get. It's pretty, um, it's pretty humbling to think about. Yeah. What a gift. What a gift you've given us. Well, it's a gift for me to have, to have the opportunity to, to share stories with, you know, with so many people through Mia, you know, she's a made up character and yet she's all of us. Yeah. So how, how would you like to see teachers using this book in schools? Um, I know a number of teachers who, and librarians who have shared it as a, you know, a classroom read or even like a grade level read. Um, an intermediate school, it would be a great whole school read. And I always encourage at at that point when you're doing sort of a community read to get extra copies for family members, because this is one of those books that is so, so powerful talked about at home, Uh, you know, because you're reading the story and, you know, children's parents have stories that they've never heard that they're hearing for the first time when they talk about this book together. And hearing those stories just opens up the door for any future conversation that might need to happen that could save a kid. And it's interesting, you know, there is no sexual assault on the page in Chirp. It is strictly a story about an, about inappropriate attention, you know, a back rub that's uncomfortable and a hug that, that is too tight and too long and, you know, texts that come at 10 o'clock at night and maybe have a picture of him in swim trunks or something like that. Uh, there's no sexual assault on the page. And yet I'm getting pushback because just the thought of it makes us so uncomfortable. And I get that. I really do. You know, we don't, We hate to think of anything like this happening to our children, but refusing to talk about it doesn't prevent it from happening. In fact, just the opposite. It makes it more likely that a kid might be targeted when they don't have the opportunity to have those conversations. Um, So I really encourage, because the, the subject matter is sensitive, um, I think when you offer families, hey, we're going to be reading this book together and here's a copy for you too, that invites caregivers into the process and it makes them collaborators. And we're going to talk about this together. And isn't this great that we're all going to have these conversations about consent and speaking up together um, can be really, really empowering. Not to mention the fact that there can be some great, great conversations at home too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if we're going to end rape culture, it has to be in conversations about consent. And I think this is a really powerful tool in our toolbox. I also wondered about um, collaborating with school counselors as folks that could come in and help um, lead conversations about um, about ways kids can be pre- proactive or ways kids can, who how they can find trusted adults, how they might identify trusted adults, things like that. Yeah, and resources in the community. Yeah. That was something when I when I uh, toured for this book. When I, I visited, 
gosh, something like 20 schools in, uh, in, in a week and a half uh, when I was on book tour for this uh, book in, in February. Many of the schools um, had my author visit in coordination with presentations from guidance counselors. Some of them had whole programs uh, in place already that deal with um, uh, sexual assault and consent. And they timed it so they could coordinate those conversations, which is just super, super powerful. It makes the book even more powerful, I think. Yeah, I love that. I had a question. I feel like you've addressed a little bit, but um, I, I guess I wondered, it's, this is not your first time writing, as we've already said, about, about what you called sensitive topics or difficult topics, topics that challenge adults to think beyond their conceptions of what kids are capable of. And I guess I wonder, it feels like those emerge, uh, when I read um, the, your author's note about breakout, and then thinking about this book and what you said about Larry Nasser, um, it feels like um, those books emerge out of current events or um, things that you're sort of, feels like you're really tapped into what's going on and those books emerge in your imagination as a way to deal with issues that are happening in our nation. I think that's fair to say. I, when my own kids, my kids are grown now, but when they were growing up, we always made it a point to be very honest with them and to discuss things with them. So if they were hearing, for example, about uh, you know, something happening on the news, whether that was drug addiction or a war or, or race issues, we would have a conversation about it and say, oh, did you understand that? Or did you, did you understand that thing that you read? And you know, we used books a lot for that. Um, but we always had very honest conversations with our kids from the time they were very little. And that was also very much my experience as a teacher. I taught middle school English for 15 years and, um, you know, taught in a, um, an 84-minute block with a lot of literature discussion and a lot of discussions about kids writing, which kids spill their souls when they write. Um, and so we talked a lot, you know, and I would have kids come in at lunch and after school and, you know, we would workshop writing pieces and get into these long conversations about everything, you know, things that were happening in their lives, but also current events. And when you have those kinds of, of relationships with young people, you develop so much respect for them um, and for their intellect and for their capacity to understand things and care too. Kids have such a strong sense of justice and such a commitment to the world they live in and making it better and a, a wholehearted belief that it's their job to do that. And so um, I think when we recognize that and really respect that in kids, you know, how can we do anything else besides be honest with them in the stories that we tell? Um, so I think, I think that really grows out of, yes, current events. I was a, I was a news reporter before I was a teacher. Um, and, and very tuned into that, but, but mostly out of respect for children. Yeah. I love that. And I really felt that in this book, Breakout, which I just finished, and I adored. I don't know what took me so long, why I hadn't read it sooner. It's brilliant. And I really re felt your respect for kids and your respect for how they share themselves through writing in this book, because it's told from the perspective of three different young people, maybe four, um, and through their written pieces, poems and parody and letters and bits of journalism and comics. And, um, and it feels really relevant to this current moment because it takes on whiteness and race. Yeah, it's very much a look at um, 
privilege and perspective. Um, and it's about, uh, you know, this, this book, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I started working on this book the day that two inmates broke out of Clinton Correctional Facility in Northern New York in June of 2015. Um, because that, that prison break, which lasted for 23 days, just consumed the community where I live in Northern New York. The prison where this happened is, you know, 14 miles from my house. And so for the better part of a month at the beginning of the summer, we had helicopters flying over the house and we were being stopped at roadblocks. And it was fascinating to see how this, this crisis and this scary event brought out the absolute best in some people and really the absolute worst in other people. And I started thinking right away, how, how were kids viewing this? What was this like to be a kid in this community? And in a community that is almost, you know, it's largely a white community. There are a few minorities, um, you know, in, in Clinton County, New York, compared to larger urban areas. And so what would it feel like to be one of those um, black kids at this school with all this happening around them? Um, and so um, Breakout, it started um, as a very traditional narrative. My first draft was a very traditional first-person narrative from the point of view of Nora Tucker, the prison superintendent's daughter. And uh, I revised, and I had my book all, you know, it's 400 pages long, it's in good shape, I've done my revision, and I showed it to a couple writer friends, and one of them, Linda Urban, who's a, a, an amazing Vermont writer, um, said to me, Kate, I love this, I love Nora's voice, but I'm I'm finding myself wondering what these other characters are thinking. And I wonder, did you ever consider telling this story from more than one point of view? And I was thinking, well, no, and it's done. So, <laughs> but, but that really nagged at me. And I'd gotten similar feedback from an editor we showed it to. And so um, it wasn't long before I took my whole 400-page book and I set it aside and I started over. Um, and when I tell that story to kids at school visit, they're like, what? Because they don't even, you know, they don't want to write the, the six-paragraph essay over. <laughs> um, but I started over and I decided that a more appropriate, a more engaging way to tell this story and a more, a more honest way to tell the story would be to include this collection of documents from this summer where this wild thing happened so that you could see all these different points of view and how different they were and how diverse they were and how two people could view the exact same thing through completely different eyes. So it's very much a book about, um, about perspective uh, and also about privilege and what it means to be white in a place like Northern New York or a place like Vermont. Yeah. I just felt like this book, I don't know if you can see in my copy, but there are so many places where I dog-eared it. The kind of conversations I was having with teachers in June at the Middle Grades Institute for Middle Level Teachers was all about um, how, do we, how do we talk about race and whiteness with our students? How do we talk to them about privilege and bias? And this book has countless examples of just what that looks like and how to complicate. I also felt like it's a very gentle way of complicating maybe the different relationships people might have with police, right? And so there's a one, for example, one moment that happens in this book that Nora, uh, our white character, really has to deal with is when she goes into a market with Elodie, her friend who is black, 
and they're asked to put their backpacks behind the counter. And I just love the way Nora has to turn through that and come up with her own response to that over time. It's not immediate. She doesn't get it right the first time, but she starts to, it starts to make her think differently. And so I think this book just does a really great job of modeling what happens when we start to notice privilege and bias. Right, yeah. So, and Nora's dealing with this for a few reasons. First of all, there's this prison break happening in town, um, you know, where, um, where one of the men who has broken out of prison is a person of color. And, uh, and, and secondly, she has this, this new friend who's moved to town. Elodie has moved to town from, from the Bronx. Um, she's African-American in a town where there are very few black people. And, and third, her older brother has a girlfriend who's gone away to college. And she's been coming home with, with ideas about social justice. And so Nora's older brother, Sean, is starting to have some of those conversations around the dinner table, which are not always welcome because her father is the prison superintendent. And, you know, it's this sort of, this sort of tension that we see when we try to talk about race with our parents mm-hmm. and, uh, and our older family members. And so it, it's all right there in, you know, right there on the page, all of these, you know, these, these tense conversations that are happening and, and how to navigate those. So, um, and I, I will just say, I love, um, I, I know I've heard from teachers and librarians and families who are reading Breakout together. Um, and I think that's amazing because it really is important to kind of look at, at whiteness and what that means to be a white person. We don't think about race as white people, uh, but we should because it, it affects how we walk through the world and how different that is from the way a person of color walks through the world. Um, but it's also not a book to read instead of books by black authors. Black authors are the experts on racism. And so I see that you have stamped um, uh, by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi on the, 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 the uh, shelf behind you. That is a great title to pair with Breakout. Um, another one would be Ghost Boys by mm-hmm. Jewel Parker Rhodes because it addresses so many of the same issues in a totally different way, but it'd be a, a, good, uh, a good partner for, for this book. But I don't ever want Breakout to be a book that teachers and librarians in white communities share instead of books by black authors because uh, that's not how it should work but it can be a compliment to them. Um, and I, I think that's a really you know, a, a helpful way of looking at it because it does look at the issue of whiteness and what does it mean and what is your job when you are a white person, um, especially in a place like, like many of us live where there are very few people of color. What is our role? What is our job? What is our responsibility? I, I love that. And own voices stories are super important to me as a librarian, as a reader. I like commit to reading at least half my books by people of color, written by people of color. And I wondered, as I was reading Breakout, one of the things I wondered was if it was complicated for you to find Elodie's voice and what it felt like to write in Elodie's voice. And one of the things I, I love this as a mentor text too, because Elodie's writing poems inspired by Jacqueline Woodson, one of my favorite writers. Um, And so I'm curious about what that was like for you to find Elodie's voice as a white woman. So I would not write a book in the voice of a, a character from a marginalized group in that perspective. Because Breakout is a collection of documents, um, it includes 
all of the voices in town. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably not surprising to you that this book was easier for me to write the first time, right? The first time I wrote this book, when I did my first draft, I was writing in first person point of view from the point of view of Nora Tucker, the prison superintendent's daughter. Um, so Nora Tucker is a white girl growing up in a small town. Her dad is the prison superintendent. And guess what? Kate Messner is a white girl who grew up in a small town. And my dad happened to be the school superintendent, but still our backgrounds are pretty close. So Nora's voice came very naturally and very easily to me, her perspective. When I went back to redo the story as this whole collection of documents, some of which were letters from Elodie and poetry that she writes, I had to start over and I had to, I had to do so much more work and so much more research. Um, so I, I had, uh, I think, half a dozen expert readers when I was working on those, those uh, who read the whole book, but with a, a particular focus on Elodie. Um, and people who had grown up in similar situations, who were people of color and spent time in places where, that were mostly white. And, um, and I was still feeling like I was missing something. And I realized, um, thanks to one of those expert readers, that there wasn't enough in the story about who Elodie was before she moved to this small town that was almost all white. And so I needed to go back and, and do more work on her background. Now, I could never write... Uh, a character like Elodie the way somebody who has that background could. But in this case with Breakout, we were talking about smaller chunks of the story, letters from that character, poetry. Um, and that was the research that I did to try and do a better job with that. Thank you for that. That really helps me. I had a lot of curiosity about that when I was reading the book and wonderings. Um, you recommended Ghost Boys and Stamped. Are there any other books you would recommend for um, this moment in time? Are there other middle grades readers who think that um, teachers might want to consider bringing into their classroom? Oh, gosh. Um, so in addition to those books like Stamped and Ghost Boys and, and The Hate You Give for Older Readers, um, that, that deal head on with these issues of racism and, and police brutality. I think it's really, really important to also share books that portray the whole, um, you know, the whole black experience, including black joy. Um, because, you know, I, I, every once in a while, I, when I visit schools, one of the gifts of being an author is I get to visit a lot of schools and see a lot of school libraries. And sometimes when I visit a library, in a community that is mostly white, and I look at what's on, you know, what's face out on the shelves, what's on display, it's books about mostly white kids. And sometimes the few books that are displayed that are, have people of color on the cover are books about the Underground Railroad and the Civil Rights Movement, or, you know, books like The Hate You Give or Ghost Boys, which are amazing stories. But there's something missing there because there are so many amazing stories that don't have anything to do with, with you know, that aren't crisis stories, that aren't about racism. Um, you know, we have, we have mysteries and, and heist stories like, like Varian Johnson's The Great Green Heist and To Catch a Cheat um, and The Parker Inheritance, which is a great mystery of Varian's. We have um, amazing fantasy books like Tracy Batiste's The Jump series. And in those books, yes, there are mermaids and yes, there are jumbies, these, these Caribbean monsters of the forest, but there are also allegories and there are also stories about, you know, the second book in the jumbie series 
has uh, these mermaids that are um, connected to the transatlantic slave trade. There is some amazing, you know, deep stuff to talk about in fantasy and in speculative fiction too. Um, and then books that are really just about joy and real families. Renee Watson has a new series out um, called the Ryan Hart series. It, and the first book is Ways to Make Sunshine. And it is just a gem of a middle grade novel. It's, it's um, you know, very much um, reminds me of Ramona, who was my favorite when I was growing up. Uh, Ryan Hart is a, a black girl growing up in Portland, Oregon, just like Ramona was, and like Beverly Cleary was too, and like Renee was. Um, Renee's from Portland as well, but it's just a, like I said, a gem of a story. It's sweet and funny and fun, and we really need to be sharing the whole range of stories um, with our kids, and not just those books that feel like they are of this moment, I think. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me, and I love Renee Watson's Piecing Me Together, so I'm totally going to check that one out. Um, me too. Have you read um, Other Words? No, not, uh, wait a minute. Some Places More Than Others? No, but I just saw that one somewhere on a list. It's a little bit newer, right? I haven't read that one yet. It came out, I think, last year. It made me, oh, it's so good. It made me cry and cry, though. She is a beautiful writer, one of my favorites. I also like Beautiful her. human, too. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know her personally, <laughs> but I'm glad you do. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great list. I also really liked Brandy Colbert's um, Only Black Girls in Town, I think it's called. I have not read that yet. I'm dying to. It's a really sweet, What you know, there's mystery in there too, but it's a great middle grades one too. Yeah. So the last thing I'm going to ask you um, is about, you know, when in March, when... Um, schools went remote you really stepped up in this big way and now that i know you're a former teacher i understand why um and uh, i use the resource you created read wonder and learn um to support so many educators that i work with i pointed so many teachers to that resource because you shared so many learning resources from authors all over it was incredible and i i guess i I just want to say thank you for curating these amazing resources of stepping up in such an important way during a, a challenging time. And I wondered if you had any reflections from that. Oh, uh, thank you. It, um, you know, as far as the way this whole pandemic began and um, there's who were in school with their kids on Friday and, and we're told on Sunday, Oh, you're not going back on Monday. And they didn't even get to say goodbye. And their kids didn't even get to bring materials home. And the librarians didn't get to give kids books. And so, um, you know, it, we're lucky enough, obviously, in our house to, to have many, many books and all the time. And so many houses aren't like that. Um, so that felt like an immediate crisis to me. Um, in addition to, you know, we know we have this global crisis with the pandemic, but we now have this secondary crisis, which is to say we have kids at home without the things they need to learn. They don't have books. Um, and so I was talking with my daughter, who I had just grabbed from college about this, and we did a couple things. First of all, we cleaned out all of my author copies. I had several hundred author copies of my, my novels and picture books hanging around, and we just boxed them all up um, and delivered them to local schools that were able to get them into kids' hands right at the beginning of, of things. Um, but then I, I was trying to figure out what can we do to to support these families at home because when this first happened, it wasn't like 
It wasn't like anybody had time to plan. It wasn't like teachers had time to record the, the stories they wanted to use or, or anything. Um, so it, it was pretty easy using social media. Social media drives me nuts sometimes, but sometimes it's a pretty great tool for bringing people together to help. Um, it was pretty easy to say, hey, who can, who can read a story so that while teachers are getting things together, while librarians are figuring this out, families will have some resources that they can use um, at home to kind of bridge that gap. And so that was the real purpose of it. Um, and we saw that, you know, in the early days, these, these video read-alouds were getting, you know, thousands of hits a day. Um, and then, of course, you know, teachers figured out, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is our school's program. And um, so hopefully we were able to, to bridge that gap. Loved it. That was really super helpful. I know so many teachers and librarians were grateful and families too. So thank oh, you. Oh, thank so you. Much. I'm glad to hear that. Um, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk about not just one book, not just Chirp, but also Breakout, The Seventh Wish, all your mysteries, all these, uh, what are they called? History busters? Uh, history smashers. Is history the smashers. These history yep. smashers. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to share uh, the wealth that is you, <laughs> the delight oh. that is you with us. It's, I'm so grateful. Oh, well, well, thank you for the invitation. It was a joy to talk books with you. I'll do that any day. <laughs> Great. I'll look forward to it in your, you know, a couple books from now. We'll have it again, I hope. <laughs> thank Sounds you so good. much, Kate. Phillips and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Kate Messner for appearing on the show and talking with me about Chirp. If you're looking for a copy of Chirp, check out your local library. Many thanks to Audrey Holman for all of her behind-the-scenes work on the podcast. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.